and I found my way into a conversation with one investor particularly who kind of took me under his wing. And from there, we developed a relationship. And soon enough, they're helping provide the resources. I'm finding the deals. It was a match made in heaven. So we started an LLC and we ran forward and we were in business for about five years before they retired out. And we took about $130,000 out of the gate and we turned it into just over 300,000 over those five years. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Joe Bell, who is a real estate investor and wealth expert coach and was featured as one of Alaska's top 40 under 40. In this episode, Joe will tell us how to use our existing connections to become a better investor and how we can leverage our network to create scenarios and opportunities. His slogan is that we're only one conversation away from achieving our goals. This episode is sponsored by Conventus Lending. Conventus is a hard money lender based in San Francisco that can help you with your fix and fill projects or help you get a loan for your rental properties. If you're looking for a hard money loan, you can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. And if this is your first time listening to the show, be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get notified when we release our next episode. And now onto the show. All right, Joe, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. I'm Joe Bell. I'm up in Anchorage, Alaska, and I'm a real estate investor and also a real estate professional. I uh, really got my, earned my stripes, if you will, in the transactional side of real estate and, you know, kind of got tired of watching everybody else make money while I was getting these, you know, small little chunks of commission along the way. So I just figured, you know, I'd find a way to jump into the other side. And uh, once I did, uh, realized, you know, all the opportunity that was out there. So we've been rocking and rolling since about 09 on real estate investments. Awesome. And can you tell us your story? How did you get into real estate and real estate investing? <laughs> yeah. So back in 06, I had just gotten my license. I was a 26 year old at the time. And I actually came from baseball. So I was coaching a couple of the kids and their dad had been in real estate, commercial real estate for about 25 years at the time, I think it was. And so I kept bugging him and I'm like, Hey, I want to do real estate. I want to do real estate. And finally he's like, all right, come on in. I'll help you get going. But first I'm going to need you to do something for me. I'm like, all right, yeah, sure. What is it? And he's like, well, I've got a liquor license that is expiring and I need to re-up it. Without going into a big, long story, I entered into a negotiation with him to basically purchase his liquor license. We opened a bar, which at that time I was like, oh, this is like every dream, opening a bar and uh, we'll have a great time. And that just like wasn't it at all. Like it totally bombed. It was a lot of fun. We had a good time, but it was about eight months of like, counting money at 3.30 a.m. in the morning, which is just not for me. And I found out the hard way. So eventually what I did is I said, here, you can take your liquor license back. It's all good. It's ready to go. But now help me get into real estate. So I jumped into commercial real estate and it was a real exciting time. I was staying up to like 2 a.m. analyzing deals, you know, going through the, the multiple listing service, finding big properties and, you know, getting a real good understanding of the foundation of a transaction, which has to do with all the numbers, right? The language of business is first. And so I got really, really good at being able to evaluate and analyze properly quickly, but I wasn't quite ready to 
you know, jump out and acquire one myself. So I just started helping individuals along the way, building their portfolios, you know, purchasing and selling homes. And like I said, I got to a point where I was like, man, I need to get on the other side rather than just, you know, being the middleman here. So that was my roundabout way into real estate. Sounds really cool. So what were you actually doing on the commercial side? And what was like those first few investments that you made when you decided to go in yourself? So back in the day when I started on the commercial side, my mentor was like, all right, here's the phone book. Here's a pen and a piece of paper. Go figure it out. (laughs) Right. So as a 26 year old, there weren't a lot of people that were willing to trust me with their life savings. So it was really a very beneficial grind, but a hard grind at the time. And I just honestly wasn't really making any money. I had one deal that was about $930,000, I think it was. And I worked for about six to eight months on it. And like legitimately, we got to the closing table and the whole deal fell apart. And it was like, wow, $30,000. At that time, at the age I was, a ton of money. And I just watched it kind of slip through my fingers. So, you know, I jumped into doing some property management, which I absolutely did not favor. That didn't work for me. And the commercial deals, they weren't consistent enough to really support me continuing down the commercial side. So then I started looking over at residential and that paid quicker. You know, it wasn't quite the big hits, but it paid quicker. So I ended up just kind of falling over into the residential side and it fit really, really well. And that was where I got the opportunity to start working with home buyers and sellers. And then, you know, jumped off over into more of my commercial evaluation, you know, kind of upbringing that I was able to get and jumped into the multifamily, duplexes, fourplexes. And really, that was kind of my bread and butter as I started moving forward and got to know some investors. So once I came across, you know, a couple of the investors, that was just my shtick, right? Like I was in my zone, in those conversations, I could look at a property, I could tell them how much, you know, they should make an offer for, here's the numbers to look at, I could just, everything started to accelerate really, really quickly. And I found my way into a conversation with one investor particularly who kind of took me under his wing and from there we develop a relationship and soon enough they're helping provide the resources i'm finding the deals it was a match made in heaven so we started an llc and we ran forward and we were in business for about five years before they retired out and we took about one hundred and thirty thousand dollars out of the gate and we turned it into just over three hundred thousand over those five years awesome Can you tell us a little bit about what happened on that very first deal where everything was going very smoothly and then at the very end, the deal just fell apart? We had gone through all of the inspections, appraisal, everything. And a gentleman that I was working with, for whatever reason, he had this concern that something was going to come up and and kind of blow up the deal. And I don't know if he had some insider knowledge or what, but he was on my side, right? He was on my team. Yet, He kept being like, man, something doesn't really feel right. And ultimately what happened is the buyers legitimately just decided not to move forward. It was this little strip mall. It had like a laundry shop, a liquor store, a little restaurant. And I think there was another little shop in there and wasn't in a real great part of town, but wasn't in a real bad part of town. And it was just kind of you know, very mid range, kind of a class C, if you will, and needed a lot of work. And I think what ended up happening was, as we went through all the inspections, you know, it just didn't really sink in on how much work they were going to have to do until we got close to closing, and it was time to pony up the money. 
And it was right then and there that they were like, you know what? Now we're out. We ended up getting their earnest money of $10,000, but you know, we weren't able to close the deal. So it was a lose-lose. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So then after that experience and you decided to get into your own investments, it sounds like you weren't actually buying your own like single family properties or duplexes, but instead you kind of partnered with other investors to do kind of like multifamily from the get-go. Yeah. So we ended up, my girlfriend at the time and I ended up purchasing a single family and we went in, we did some work, not really knowing, you know, where it was going with, you know, there wasn't really a vision. It was just an opportunity to go in and, and provide some value. So we started on a single family, but along the way, we ended up meeting this investor who had a lot of experience on the duplex, triplex, fourplex side of things. And so I was helping him acquire some of these fourplexes, you know, we're up here in Alaska. And so we get a lot of properties at the time that were freezing, right? So you're getting pipes that would burst. And all of a sudden, I mean, this property is, you know, in, in dire need. So there was only a, a handful of folks that were willing and able and understood what to do with some of these properties that have froze. And uh, this gentleman I was working with just so happened like that was kind of his, his knack, if you will. Like he just, he understood it, went in, we had plumbers set up, ready to go. Like he just, he knew how to attack those scenarios. And as a result, I got to learn through some of those acquisitions. And then we ended up jumping into a duplex together and that was our first investment. So again, he had more of the resources. These guys were in their 60s when we were working with them. And so it was my job to acquire and then, you know, help figure out what we needed to do in order to add value to the property. So then we could turn around and, you know, either uh, fix and hold or fix and flip. Yeah. How did you meet this investor and why was he willing to bring you on the team? It was my girlfriend's boss at the time. And I knew he had been a longtime investor, but he already had a relationship with a real estate professional. And so it was just a matter of me continuing to ask right? And, you know, be consistent in my approach. What I lack for in talent, I tend to make up with persistence. And so I just kept kind of zinging him like, hey, here's a property, here's a property, you know, and eventually over time, it kind of broke. And I ended up getting this call. I, I tell this story. And to me in my brain, what I remember, this is a long time ago, in my brain, I always associate it with like Christmas Eve. And that might just, you know, be playing to the story a little bit. It was right around then. It was nine o'clock at night. It was cold. And he calls me up and he's like, Joe, I found a fourplex. It's frozen. I need you to meet me over there in 15 minutes. Right. And I'm like, okay, sure. Right. I mean, I was hungry. I was willing. And he was finally opening the door. So I show up at the property and sure enough, it is frozen. He did tell me to bring some boots. And uh, evidently he had peeked over in the crawl space a little earlier that day. So we end up getting our boots on and we go into the crawl space and I didn't realize at the time, but we were, we were crawling around and these properties tend to stink pretty bad, but we're crawling around in the crawl space. I should say walking, we're walking around in the crawl space and I start to notice that there's stuff in the water, which is pretty normal, right? I mean, it could be insulation, it could be personal items, it could be any number of anything that could be in a crawl space. You just never know. But we realized that part of the sewer had broken in that like legitimately, again, I'm, I'm overindulging a little bit here on this, but like we're standing in other people's shit. And I remember just kind of looking around going, how in the hell did I get here? But at the same time, I was like, 
man, this is exactly what I want to be doing. <laughs> Not standing in other people's feces, but like there was something really beautiful about that situation going, all right, here's a property in dire need of attention. We're going to acquire it. We're going to fix it up and we're going to make it something beautiful. So that was probably one of our better scores because we picked it up around 300. I think 80 went into it and we sold it at uh, 535 about, I think it was six or seven years later. Okay. Very nice. And like during that time, you're holding on to it as a cash flowing rental property? Let's see. We ended up putting some financing on it. And so, yeah, it was just, it was purely just a, a rental, you know, a fix and hold until it was time to sell it off. What do properties in Alaska kind of rent for like that fourplex per unit? Yeah. So two bedroom is what that one was, two bedroom, one bath. And those typically go around like eight fifty per month. Okay. Very nice. Yeah. So you can get them up above a thousand bucks, but just a real pretty solid approach back then. It was, it was right around 850. They could be closer to about a thousand depending on area, depending on condition, you know, all this. So real, you know, quick and dirty approach. If you know, it's bringing in 4,000 a month and you know, you can get it anywhere around 400,000, a 10% approach typically ends up cash flowing in our market, depending on, you know, what the approach is on lending or cash or whatever the mixture is there. So yeah, we're anywhere between 4,000 to 4,800, pretty typical on a monthly gross here for our fourplexes. And how is the investor financing those properties? It depends. So typically what they'll do is they'll go get a line of credit in some of those scenarios back in the day, there'd be a line of credit that we would pull and we would go acquire, you know, potentially putting in some of the, some of our own money, or if we had an account designated specifically for the repairs in that. And then let's see, in some of those scenarios, it was a personal financing that would go in and then they'd shift it over to an LLC from there. It just kind of depends on, you know, what the best scenario is for that individual or, you know, the investors that we're working with. Mm -hmm. And since you got into the industry around 2006, everyone knows that by 2008, 2009, we had our interesting economic scenario, kind of similar to what we're having right now. How were you affected during those times? I really didn't know a different market, to be honest, right? Because I, I got my license in 06, but then I ended up working on this bar for, you know, over the next year, essentially bringing it up to code and then running it. So it was 07 and really started trying to get, you know, some traction under my feet, 08, 09. So I didn't really know what I was up against, right? I thought sitting on hold for two hours negotiating a short sale was just normal. So all boats float with a rising tide. I mean, I was out there like digging for sand dollars. And when the water started coming in and floating some of those boats, it was like, oh, wow, this is way easier. I was just grinding, to be honest. Like, you know, during those times, I didn't have a lot of money. I wasn't producing a lot. You know, there were times where I had to ask my girlfriend to cover my rent and the mortgage in some scenarios. So it was a hard time, but it was, I knew that real estate is what I wanted to do. Like I'd get a lot of flack from my girlfriend where she's like, you're smart. You got a finance degree, like go get a job. Don't, you know, sit here and, and, you know, stress out and, grind through this, like there's a much easier channel for you. But I was ultra committed to real estate and making it work because I saw the vision down the line of what real estate could be. And, you know, I mean, it's one of the best asset classes to invest in out there, you know, and I don't know that that's necessarily going to go away anytime soon. So, you know, we just, we did what we had to do. How do you feel things are like, do you think things are differently now compared to how it was back in 08? 
You know, I do. Yeah, it's a pandemic versus, you know, an economic fallout. So there is some difference there for sure. What we're seeing up here now, we're, we're a little bit disconnected from the, you know, contiguous 48 states down there. And so we're seeing some material costs really rise. And that's going to affect our ability for new construction over the next 18 months, I'd imagine, and some of the costs there. Our market has been phenomenal during this time, which is you know, kind of blowing my mind. But when you look at the interest rates, which wasn't necessarily a play back in 08 timeframe, you know, it makes sense why there's so much activity during a pandemic. So I think really we're going to see some of the you know, some of the backlash from what we've been experiencing here over probably the next 12 months and specifically up here where you're looking at a increased material cost. Well, that's just going to potentially help on the existing structures, you know, and then you add inflation and everything else that can go into this very interesting dynamic that we have. And it creates a, a much different environment than what we had in 08. Yeah, we're actually seeing a lot of activity here in the Bay Area as well, but more so in kind of like the suburban markets. People are leaving the big cities like San Francisco to move into places where it's like half price, but you can get double the square footage and a yard, you know, actual views and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I was wondering about that a few months back. I was thinking about that individual that's, you know, in New York in a 400 square foot apartment and can't go outside. Like that was my vision of what was happening, you know, to some of those folks. And I'm like, man, I wonder if that's going to impact for the future, if they are going to look for some of those other scenarios to go out and, you know, kind of stretch out and, you know, grab something that is, you know, much less than what they're probably paying for, you know, for that 400 square feet in downtown New York. So it's interesting to hear you, you know, provide some support in that concept, which I, I think we're going to continue seeing as we move forward, but who knows, you know, with the election coming up, I mean, all bets are off. Like, I, I don't know, you know from there what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I spoke with a friend about that just yesterday and he was like, the apartment just downstairs, same floor plan is uh, 6% sold for 6% less than what he bought his for last year. So there's already some decrease in property value. And he's like, he doesn't even see the potential for it to come back because people move to like SF or New York because they like the city life or they need to be in close proximity to work, but they don't have to go to work for another year or so. And of course there's no real city life, you know, like what are you going to do? So yeah, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very interesting times, you know, and then there's some of us that are kind of sitting back going, well, it could create an opportunity, right? I mean, somebody's going to, gain and benefit out of the fluctuations in the market one way or another. So, you know, whereas maybe some of that property wasn't approachable previously, it could create some opportunities. But again, I'm not down in California. I don't know exactly. I don't have my finger on the pulse of that market specifically, but it'll be interesting to see how this all transpire or how it all plays out and what transpires. Mm -hmm. And so back in 2008, when the market was you know, very, very tough and there were short sales going on. You know, right now I don't see a lot of short sales going on. In fact, there's like the eviction moratoriums as well as foreclosure moratoriums. So what are you guys doing in terms of your acquisition strategy? You know, we've always had more of a, a strategy of finding what's on the market. It's very interesting how many opportunities we're able to capitalize on with some of the properties on the market. There's something about being able to scan through our MLS and go, okay, that could be an opportunity. 
and then just kind of sitting back watching that property. And if nothing happens, then being able to submit an offer that's, you know, drastically lower than what the asking price is. And you can expect that they're either going to, you know, have a minimal counter or just tell you to go pound sand, right? That's typically our first response. And then we'll sit back another couple of weeks and inevitably it seems as though they do circle around if they don't end up getting any more attention. And so, you know, one thing that we've, you know, magically, uh, but not magically, it's more systematically been able to do is consistently find properties where we're able to get about a hundred thousand off the asking price. And a hundred thousand is, you know, on a three hundred and fifty. $400,000 deal. So we're able to get somewhere around, you know, that 18 to 25% and sometimes 30% discount. And it's just all, you know, being very familiar with our market, knowing what to look for, you know, having done so many acquisitions and flipping properties that you can walk in a property and actually you don't even have to walk in a property anymore. You can look at it virtually and know what to expect in regards to expense and know what to expect in regards to your ARV walking out the door. That's very interesting because I think you're one of the few people who actually buys their deals off of the MLS. Of course, most people on the show, they send out mailers or they cold call or they go through brokers who have their own pocket listings. Right. And I totally understand where you guys are coming from too because even I had a property that was sitting on the market for a long time. So even though we have very hot market, there are still some properties that just sit for whatever reason. It just doesn't get the attention that it deserves. And especially now because of COVID, you need like this special PED form to enter the properties to even like look at it. So you have less people going through and less people like submitting offers. If you're a seller and you have some strange financing and you have to sell it for whatever reason and your property's been sitting on the market for 60 plus days, at least you have some offer, some light at the end of the tunnel and they might take it if it's enough for them to walk away. But think about what you just said, right? 60 days, like... 60 days used to be nothing. Like that was just a normal time on market, right? Not that long ago. And so, you know, for us, I guess I'm assuming, right? Your market compared to ours, but you know, 45 to 60 days, that was just, that was kind of what you expected. You know, the real hot properties would go real quick. Otherwise you're going to be on for up to, you know, 90 days before you really get any activity. So the fact that we are seeing properties sit for 45, 60 days right there immediately indicates an opportunity, right? And, and what we're doing is, is we're keeping four or five properties in circulation on, you know, our target list. And if the situation makes sense where we see some movement on the price or, you know, maybe we get some sort of indication, because again, we are plugged into our market. We've been here for 15 years now, 14 years going on 15. So we're familiar with individuals and individuals are familiar with us they reach out to us and they go, Hey Joe, man, I've got this property that's on the market. We're not getting much action. I think that these guys are, you know, really looking to exit here pretty quick. You want to take a look at it and see if it might be something that hits in your wheel well. And as a result, we end up with opportunities that a lot of other investors don't, you know, and then throw in the percentage of being a real estate professional that you can apply towards a discount or not. You know, it creates a pretty good opportunity. Yeah. So you're using your license to get maybe like 3% off because you're representing yourself as the buyer. Correct. Yep. In some scenarios. Gotcha. Yeah. Either that or, you know, and it depends on the situation, right? We'll, we'll typically negotiate with our commission being paid out and then during negotiations, take it off the table. 
because then it feels like they're getting a different deal when you now go, okay, you know, we, we were going to have you pay that, but if maybe we cut that 3% out and, you know, here's our new number, what do you think about that? Yeah, probably better for them too because they pay less taxes and whatnot and all that stuff. Right, yep. So, but it just kind of depends on the deal. Sometimes we end up getting paid, you know, the 3% out and now we have more money for the repairs or, you know, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Are you guys focusing mostly on, you know, like smaller multifamily or are you guys doing like larger apartment complexes and syndicating deals and whatnot? Yeah. So the larger complex has been more the apple of my eye and what we're working towards. So up here, you know, a a 20 unit multifamily is typically going to be one, two to 2 million, somewhere in there. And so it requires a lot more cash, right? In order to make a run at those. And the thing is, is they're just not that available, right? The ones that are typically in real, real rough areas and For me as an investor, that isn't really something that I focus on. Um, Highlight the different areas where I know we're going to have some real solid rental potentials. So we just don't dip into much as a result of a lack of opportunity with some of those bigger properties. But that's what we're towards is really getting the, the cash surplus behind us so that we can make some runs at some bigger properties and create some different opportunities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I hear you say you are in Alaska, Alaska for us is one part of the country, but I guess for you, Alaska is a huge part, right? It's, it's, it's huge. So what part of Alaska are you actually in? And what would you say that dynamic is like? Is it super urban or suburban or rural? It's very much, let's see, I've gone to Texas and I've been like, oh, wow, this kind of feels a little bit like Alaska. Now I'm in Anchorage and specifically I live in a ski resort town about 30 miles south of Anchorage it has 1200 people in it. Cool little place. But Anchorage is where we do the majority of our business. And we have around 300,000 people that live in, you know, Anchorage, if you will, which is surrounded by mountains and ocean and an Air Force base. So it's a very defined pocket. There's not a lot of sprawl. Now you can drive 45 minutes north and that's where the sprawl happens out in Wasilla and Palmer. But Anchorage for us has been, you know, really our, it's a nice home base because it is so controlled and confined, I should say, not controlled, confined. And you know what you're working with in that market. The dynamic is that there's a handful of other investors that are here and you're familiar with them. You see their work. You can, you know, bank on if you're competing on a a pretty solid investment opportunity that, you know, the majority of those other players are in it, right? But it doesn't feel like any sort of shark infested waters because it feels like there's more than enough opportunity for everyone. I mean, if you think about Anchorage and when we had the big, you know, oil boom up here, late 70s, early mid 80s, they just threw homes up and all of those homes are now timing out. So there's a real neat opportunity to find those homes that haven't been touched and, you know, upgrade them and make the appreciation off of those because, I mean, there's plenty of them out there. So yeah, it's a, it's a pretty unique market in that, in that regards. And, you know, you're in Alaska. So the environment, nature is, I mean, just around the corner, there's moose walking across the street. There's, you know, the occasional bear running across the road. Like, like that's Alaska, you know, but real genuine, nice people. And you've got a lot of mix in our community because it's military, 
you're close to the islands. It just creates this really unique draw as a result of being Alaska. And a lot of folks come up here from lower 48 and they're like, man, this is home. So it's a pretty cool, unique market in that sense. You know, like I invest in Florida, my girlfriend invests in Texas, and they each have their own environmental hazards, like you were mentioning. Like we have hurricanes in Florida, and there's earthquakes in California, and there's some tornadoes in Texas. What are like the major things that you need to like watch out for a home in Alaska? So there's not a ton of challenges outside of earthquakes, right? Earthquakes are going to create some opportunity for the right investors looking for those sorts of opportunities, but they're not so frequent enough that we've had this, you know, surplus of homes that have been affected by earthquakes. We just had a big one back in November of 18. And as a result, we've seen, you know, a couple of homes kind of trickle on onto the market. But beyond that, I mean, if you're built or if you're, you know, doing some work in Anchorage, you've got to deal with the weather. So you're going to get frozen pipes, you're going to get mold, there's going to be a lot of mold properties that come up as a result of moisture you know, with cold air. So beyond that, really, we have sump pumps and probably uh, I'd venture to get 65, 70% of homes up here just because our, our water table is, you know, pretty high in that in regards to, you know, being at ocean level, essentially, you know, because I, I think we're, I want to say we're like, right around 300 feet above, you know, the ocean elevation, you know, but it's not anything of real concern where it's not an environmental factor that really comes into play. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, as long as the property is being operated and the water is flowing through the pipes, then you're not going to have the frozen pipes issue. Yeah. Yep. Yep. In In most cases, sometimes, I mean, there's so many being around the investment game for a while, right? You just, you see so much. And some of the reasons for a property to, you know, get destroyed in some cases, you know, I mean, it could be something like leaving a window open in the winter and there happens to be a baseboard, you know, below and for whatever reason, the furnace went out or I should say the boiler went out and bada bing, all of a sudden, boom, you end up with a frozen pipe and that thing goes real quick. So it's very interesting. So what would you say is like one of your biggest challenges that you've had as an investor? I think for a lot of investors that I have conversation with is the mindset, right? And continuing to see the positive side of these properties that you run into and also know that in most scenarios, when you do the right things and the right activities for the right reasons, uh, working with the right people, the right sort of outcomes are going to play out. You know, I mean... In a lot of these transactions, you know, working with contractors, working with vendors, man, it can be hairy at times. It can be a real struggle, a real challenge. And so, you know, maintaining that positive mindset that, you know, the good positive side of the investment is going to be what plays out. And any challenge that you run into is going to be really good for your character and, you know, building, you know, that future out for, you know, future experiences that you're going to run into when it comes to challenges. Because they're always going to come up. So, you know, it's mindset and then it's, it's just a matter of finding good deals. Yeah, Rod Cleef says that all the challenges that you face are just seminars. You pay some money to go through a seminar and get a PhD in this problem. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's true. I mean, you know, every property, every situation, every condition that you face, like it's all just gearing you up for, you know, what's next in that regard. And maintaining a positive mindset and outlook is, for me, it's, it's everything. Right. So yeah, it, it always, it rises and falls on, on leadership and that's typically a mindset. So I read that you use connections to create a retirement plan. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So we have found 
that everything we need is in our network, right? The majority of folks are, are constantly going, oh, I want to get into investments. I don't know where to look. I don't know what to do. Well, if you just take a step back and you look at your network that you have available to you, chances are either you'll find the right person, the right resources, or the right connection in that network. And you just have the conversations. One thing that I say a lot is you're only one conversation away because you just never know what a conversation can lead to. So the important aspect is continuing to have conversations, continuing to parlay with people about what you do, what you're looking for. And it's amazing once you open up those conversations and you have that mindset and approach to conversations and asking great questions, what can potentially come out on the other side of those conversations? Because I mean, it's amazing how many times I've been, you know, chatting with somebody that is an acquaintance, maybe not a real close friend, but is an acquaintance. And uh, they're like, oh man, I saw that you just posted that flip that you guys did on Facebook, right? Or whatever. I've got a buddy that, you know, has 80,000 bucks and they're looking to invest. Like those sorts of scenarios happen more often than not. And so in really making a decision to commit to real estate investing, to getting involved in it will create some really cool opportunities and they all come out of conversations with individuals, but you just have to commit to it and be open to the conversation, be open to some of the vulnerability that comes as a result of being new into the industry. But I mean, honestly, if you're committed to it, you'll open up the conversation with individuals that you probably haven't had any sort of investment conversations with before. And you'll be surprised at how many different scenarios come up that will lead you to the next conversation of opportunity. So it's diving into your network. It's constantly talking about what you're looking for, what you're focused on in regards to real estate investing. And, you know, those opportunities will come up as long as you allow them to. That makes a lot of sense. Like when I first got started with real estate investing, it was so, so hard because I had nothing going on. I had nothing to really talk about. But then flash forward a few years later, they start to recognize you. They start to talk to you more often. I even got past the deal because no one else wanted it, but I thought it was a great one. And we ended up making a lot of profit on it. And also at that time, you're like, oh, no, I don't have a contractor. I don't have XYZ in place. But then now you could go back to your network and say, hey, do you guys have a contractor you recommend? Do you have an insurance guy? Do you have a lender? Right. Even right now, if I need some small subs, I just go on Facebook and say, hey, does anyone know a good foundation guy? And I would get like five different text messages, say, hey, call this guy, call this guy, call this guy. And then you just pick the ones that are the best and create your own little list so that in the future, if you need that kind of job, you can just go back and find them. Right. Yeah. You know, I typically, when talking to somebody that's new that wants to get into real estate investing, it's like, all right, you're going to need education, you know, so start digging into stuff, go find, you know, five or six blogs that, you know, are formative and educational and start learning. And then also while you're in that process, share some of those blogs, share some of those articles, you know, and almost become the source for really good information with real estate investing. Because when you're doing that, you might share the right thing that somebody needs to see to create the conversation with you, but you're also supporting somebody else's efforts that has put that blog together or that article. And so it's a twofold, right? Get yourself in the middle of it, become the source, become, you know, the opportunity for the conversation and they'll naturally sprout up. And you don't necessarily have to, you know, wait until you get the deal. It is just a matter of being in the circulation of conversations around real estate investing. And you'll surprise yourself at how many opportunities actually come up 
as a result of doing so, you know? So that's one real easy approach to get involved. Exactly. So like I work as a hard money lender and there are some people who they know me, they've known me for years, but they don't know I work as a hard money lender. So then it just takes someone else who like asks, Hey, does anyone have an HML connection? And then someone says, Oh, go talk to Sean. And they go, really Sean's one. And then boom, there's a, and there it is. A deal that gets put in place. Yeah. It's really nice. Yeah. You're only one conversation away, right? Like it's so incredible when you just break it down to that one simple statement of you never know where a conversation is going to go. So might as well have it. Absolutely. Well, Joe, this has been a very great conversation. Do you have any other tips for our listeners who might be new to real estate who are interested in getting into it? I get this question quite a bit. And really for the new investor, it is submerging yourself into real estate investments. Like, you know, get your hands on information, get your hands on education, go to a seminar, you know, watch, you know, some of these uh, podcasts. I mean, you just have to indoctrinate yourself into the world if you're truly that committed to getting involved. And once you do, the opportunities are going to start to show themselves as you, you know, dive in further and further and further. So it's a beautiful industry if you are in it for the right reasons, right? We talk about people over profits quite a bit. And if you take a step back from what real estate investing is, right, it's about the people because there's people that need help in some scenarios and you can either go into those scenarios and focus on getting the absolute best deal for yourself right or trying to work out a scenario that is going to help these individuals get on to the next phase whatever that is for them and also align yourself for a really good interaction real good profitable interaction and try to create a win-win as much as possible. So, you know, focus on who you're really doing it for, the reason that you're doing it, and then just jump in it. We've been so fortunate as a result of finding our way into real estate investing. Awesome. Well, Joe, how can people get in contact with you? So we have a website. It's called legacybeyondlistings.com. It was initially, it was predicated off helping real estate professionals retire. And then as we got further into it, started realizing it was information that everybody could utilize, not just real estate professionals. So legacybeyondlistings.com, we have a case study there. And then if you are interested, we have ebook that turned into an actual book and that's on Amazon. It's called Assets, Acquisitions and Abundance. So you can look us up on there as well. What's your book about? So our book is exactly that. It's taking the assets that we all individually have, right? Our strengths in order to make a run after an asset and how to acquire those assets to make it a profitable transaction. But then keeping abundance as your mindset, as you're going through all of this, because again, real estate investment, it can be a challenge and you can run into some really hard, challenging scenarios, you know, like we did when COVID hit and we lost $900,000 in funding. You know, those scenarios come up and if you can catch yourself, you know, when you're slipping over to scarcity and keep yourself in the abundance mindset, you know, ultimately it's going to work out. So I feel like that's something that I need to ask you real quick before we end our show. Is it just like funding for like a deal that you guys had in place and people backed out because they were scared? So we're working on the development. We're putting up four units of an eight unit development and we had about 600 all lined up. Let's see, it was set to fund late March and then COVID hit. So we lost those investors because yeah, they didn't know what was going to happen, right? So they all pulled back their investments. And then we were also in line to buy a little boutique hotel. 
And uh, we had about 300,000 lined up for that. And the same thing happened. Everybody just, everybody got scared. The challenge was that I had some notes due as a result of wrapping up these properties with funding dates in early April. And so all of a sudden we had scenarios where we weren't able to fund those notes and it created a really uncomfortable, you know, few weeks, month going through the conversations with some of these individuals that were expecting you to get paid out. And now we couldn't, you know, fully perform at that time. So those scenarios, like it's just, it's part of the game. And what's neat is it keeps you on your toes and it really forces you to think differently on how to, you know, how to approach some of those scenarios and still be able to perform without leaving somebody high and dry. So yeah, we had about 900 that went middle of March and uh, we couldn't perform on a couple of notes. And, you know, if you fast forward today, we've been able to perform, we've been able to set up some scenarios where the individuals that were holding those notes, we set them up on a different program for payment, moving them out. So we're in a much better place than in March. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, when things happen, it's all about being creative enough to solve the problem and having the conversation you need to be able to make sure everyone's calm, right? And know what's going on. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Joe, thank you again so much for going over all this and being vulnerable and, you know, sharing the story because I think it's very important for everyone who was getting into real estate to know that not everything is sunshine and rainbows. There are problems, but if you have the right mindset and you're able to think, you know, bigger, you're going to be able to dig yourself out of these holes that come out of nowhere. Yeah. You connect yourself with the right positive community and the people in that community, you know, things like your podcast here, you know, there's a a ton of gold in some of these podcasts. So yeah, it's a ton of fun. And I appreciate the opportunity, Sean. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you again for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to the show and leaving a review to get updated when the latest episode comes out. A brief summary of this podcast can be found in the show notes at everythingrei.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second, and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks, and have a great day.